0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Brian Dainsburg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Dainsburg, lead pastor of Lyons Bible Church, located in beautiful southeast Wisconsin. We're in the middle of a series on politics, and I want to review some of the ground we've covered before we go into this new stuff today. When I talk about politics, I'm referring to something very specific. Jonathan Lehman puts out a three-part definition. Politics refers to the institutional activity of governance over an entire population backed by the power of coercion, which in varying degrees will be regarded as legitimate. Uh, Take an example, just to make sure we know what we're talking about. Speed limit laws and enforcement, politics is first of all, an institutional activity of governance. Okay, so there is a group of governing leaders somewhere that exercise the governing activity of establishing the 25-mile-per-hour speed limit on the road that I live on. That is, there was an institutional activity of governance. That speed limit is incumbent on the entire population. It, it governs Hondas, Toyotas, male, female, senior citizens, teenagers, And the speed limit is backed by the power of coercion. That is, it is enforced through law enforcement officers or radars or whatever, who maybe dispense tickets and fines as coercion to bind the speed limit code on the entire population. So we talk about politics. This is what I have in mind. It's important to think think about, keep that in mind as we peruse this. Now, in part one, I talked about the fact that the line between religion and politics may not be as hard and fast as we think. That The public square, the political world is nothing more or less than a battleground of gods, each vying to push the levers of power in its favor. Lehman puts it this way. He says, when a nation's constitution and laws... What a nation's constitution and laws represent is an amalgam of competing values and religious commitments cobbled together over time by compromise and negotiation. In the battleground of gods called the public square, the law books present a record of which gods won a majority when the vote was taken or which could secure a high court decision. If the above is true, then all churches are political and politics is religious Now, this does not mean that there should be overlap of church and state. Merely, it's pointing out the fact that all churches are political in some way, shape, or form, and politics is religious in some way, shape, or form. I mean, there are two examples that make this very clear, the issue of abortion and gay marriage. Abortion was a so-called religious issue long before it was a so-called political issue. Same goes for gay marriage. Marriage is one man, one woman for life. The marriage issue was a biblical issue long before it was a political issue. Second thing I talked about in that that first part is the starting point for prioritizing religio-political views. Uh, Christians are inescapably political. By virtue of how we see the world, hopefully based on careful study of the Bible, we make appeals for how the institutional activity of governance over the population backed by the power of coercion is to function. Now the Bible does not prescribe a particular form of government. It doesn't say a democratic Republic or a constitutional Republic is the only way to appropriately organize government or a monarchy is the only way to organize government. It doesn't really deal with forms of government, but it does say something to governing leaders who they should be and what they should do and, and what should characterize them. And it does also say something about laws. And I talked about the fact that, that, um, In thinking through politics, it is important to think about the rule of law. What place does it have? And I talked about a three-part hierarchy. I talked about justice, law, governing authorities. And by justice, what I mean is biblical justice. Granted, that's a massive landscape to survey. Uh, A good place to start, however, is the Law of Moses. Uh, One of the things the, the Law of Moses accomplishes is reveal to us the nature of God's character. The law he handed to Israel wasn't random and arbitrary, it was an outworking of his essence and being, and we know God is perfectly just, so if we want to know what justice is, start with the law of Moses, the only flawless codified system of law ever possessed by humanity. This is what I mean by justice. It's justice according to the Bible. It's justice according to the character of God. The second concept I talked about is law. This is where I think Martin Luther King Jr. was spot on. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote that a just law is one that squares with the moral law of God. King was proceeding, excuse me, processing what human laws are just and what human laws are unjust. And his argument, I think he's right, is that a just human law is one that squares with the moral law of God. He's thinking of laws in terms of biblical justice. He's starting with the moral law of God, with biblical justice, which is the standard of justice, and asking, how does this human law codified in my country or community square with the moral law of God? And the third concept is governing leaders. Governing authorities, governing leaders are the people you voted for. And the question I'm wrestling with with regard to governing authorities is, do they view themselves as subordinate to biblical justice and the laws that ought to be birthed out of biblical justice? Are they subject to the laws of the land? They are. We know that we are, they are, but do they acknowledge and believe they are? And the third thing we talked about is remembering the limits of just laws. Thinking God's thoughts after him and imaging Christ to the world will never be achieved through the establishment and enforcement of just laws. The Bible storyline could not be clearer on that. What, What the law of Moses was unable to do, Jesus does through his work and his spirit. This is why politics is secondary to the mission of the church. This is why I'd rather see my neighbor converted to Christ than to my political point of view. There will be Republicans and there will be Democrats in hell. So what really is ultimate? Now, in the last episode, I argued that the Noahic Covenant provides the foundation upon which notions of governmental oversight are provided for in skeletal form. That is, the Noahic Covenant contains the ingredients for the development of institutions and associations that serve the purpose of the threefold ethic the Noahic Covenant outlines. And that threefold ethic is procreation, eating, and administering justice. Now, in that last ethic regarding justice, it's interesting to observe that God did not authorize human beings to penalize crimes committed against him, like idolatry, but only crimes committed against one another. The Noahic covenant, which is still binding today, does not authorize government to punish bad theology, just bad behavior. And so, it follows that government has a legitimate role in establishing a common morality, but not a common religion. Now, note well on this, I think secular people will have a hard time deciphering the difference between a common religion and common morality, because they often see morality itself as religious. Okay? But from a biblical perspective, this, these things are, they can be distinguished. This leads me to the idea I want to reflect on today. The main idea is this. Christians should work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Christians should work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. If the Noahic covenant authorizes governments to establish not a common religion, but a common morality, What standard of justice did God expect judicial institutions to operate by? God expects the state to uphold a common good, a common morality, not a common religion. It's there to punish bad behavior, not bad doctrine. They are responsible to maintain social stability. But how would people who don't subscribe to the Christian scriptures, who don't follow Jesus, determine what that morality should be? Again, we're going to use the Bible to answer the question because it's the only way we can. The short answer is God expects them to hold to a biblical morality in their governing. David Van Drunen, whose book I highly recommend, has a very, very lengthy quote that, is, that explains this. I want to read it. He writes, The Old Testament contains many accounts of judgment, God brought or promised to bring upon wicked Gentile nations and their rulers. Now, when you hear the word Gentile, think secular. The Old Testament contains many accounts of judgment God brought or promised to bring upon wicked Gentile nations and their rulers. In one of the most famous, God rained fire and brimstone from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah in response to the great outcry against these cities and their, quote, very grave sin, end quote. The Old Testament prophets also provide numerous examples through their oracles against non-Israelite communities. Such oracles appear in all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of the minor prophets, Amos. The oracles serve different purposes in different contexts, but many of them announce coming divine judgment against these nations' sins, and some of them address rulers specifically. They often target nations that have opposed or mocked God's covenant people. Surely a source of encouragement for the church and of warning for hostile governments today. God held all of these nations accountable and permitted them no space for neutrality. It is remarkable that in the text cited above, God never judges these nations or their rulers for idolatry as he did with Israel. This indicates that he did not condemn them for failure to establish true religious worship and exclude the non compliant. God condemned them instead for egregious acts of injustice or crimes against humanity. Amos 1 and 2, for example, he brings charges for acts such as slave trading, violating treaties, and ripping open pregnant women. This makes sense. God holds governments and their officials accountable for promoting justice, but does not wish them to exclude people on the basis of religious identity. God ordains commonality and accountability simultaneously. Many nations and their rulers have not had and do not have knowledge of the Christian scriptures and God holds them accountable for administering justice nonetheless. And so in these passages, what Van Johnen is pointing out, is that judgment falls on Gentile nations and leaders, or secular nations and leaders, not for bad theology, but for bad conduct. This would seem to support the notion that when God gave humanity the Noahic Covenant, he did indeed expect governing institutions to govern according to a biblical ethic. He expected governments to establish not a common religion, but a common morality. There are further examples of this. Uh, You've got the prophet Daniel, who has this interaction with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, a secular nation, a secular ruler, the most powerful ruler in the world, about 600 BC. And Daniel said to him, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, Daniel is calling a secular governing leader. Now, granted, David, um, anyway, yes, David, he's calling a secular governing leader who presumably does not hold to the scriptures to live in accordance with a biblical ethic in his governing. Daniel calls him to break off his sins and to practice righteousness. So, just because he doesn't subscribe to the Christian scriptures doesn't mean he's given a pass in behaving or governing in ways that align with a biblical ethic. In the New Testament, John the Baptist rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, who was a civil governor under the Roman Empire. He rebuked him, quote, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things Herod had done. Certainly John's rebuke of this this quote, all the evil things included many acts that Herod had done as a governmental Ruler, So John the Baptist, a Christian, is calling him out for his failure to live in accordance with biblical morality. As if that was truly uh, an expectation that God had. Later, the Apostle Paul reasoned with uh, the Roman governor Felix, quote, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. It's likely that Paul was calling Felix to account for his conduct as a government official under the Roman Empire. Then the text says that Felix was alarmed by what Paul had said and he sent them away. So we have in the scriptures, quote unquote, Christian people calling secular people to live and govern in accordance with a biblical ethic. God holds secular nations and secular leaders accountable to a common morality that squares with scripture. And we have to go further and say that all people have this knowledge. All people have this knowledge. Whether you subscribe to the Christian scriptures or not, all people have this knowledge. Theologians sometimes call it natural law. By natural law, I refer to the idea that God makes known the basic substance of his moral law through the created order itself. Human beings, therefore, know this law simply by virtue of being human, even apart from access to scripture or other forms of special revelation. They know it through their natural capacities as they live in this world. You've got a couple of appeals to this in Romans 1 and 2. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Romans chapter 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. All human beings have a God-given intuition as to what is right and good and just. This is why Daniel and John the Baptist and Paul felt compelled to appeal to secular leaders to govern according to it. This is why God has and will judge nations and national leaders according to it. Therefore, Christians should work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Now I want to briefly tie that idea back to something I talked about in part one, this starting point for prioritizing religio-political views. I talked about the need for a nation's laws to square with conceptions of biblical justice. I agree wholeheartedly with Martin Luther King Jr. on this. He, He wrestled with this. Right? His conclusion is that a just law is one that squares with the moral law of God. So, the law against killing squares with the moral law of God. Thou shalt not kill. The law against stealing squares with the moral law of God. Thou shalt not steal. What other laws do our nations need that work to square themselves with the moral law of God? Well, Christians need to proactively work to establish those and push for those. What law... Uh, What laws on the books are unjust and don't square with the moral law of God? Christians need to work to remove or replace those. Now, just as a quick side note, there there is an idea out there called theonomy, which basically says let's reinstitute the Mosaic law for the United States. I'm not arguing for that. I, I don't think that does a responsible job of handling the Mosaic law in light of Christ. However, there is a transcendent law that continues to this day over all of humanity, which is the moral law of God, which is why I've been very careful to to make sure we use that that language. Now, moving from the moral law of God, moving from a common biblical morality to specific laws and policies isn't easy in some situations. I mean, (laughs) what should the corporate tax rate be? What is the line of demarcation between a just rate and an unjust rate? That's not easy. The minimum age for voting. What is the line of demarcation between a law that establishes a just age versus an unjust age? That's not easy. But there are some examples that are clear cut. Killing. (laughs) And I would put in that category abortion. You can see my podcast, listen to my podcast on that one. Stealing. Lying. We have laws against perjury, defamation, obstruction moving from the moral law of God to specific laws and policies isn't necessarily easy in some situations, but the principle remains in spite of the complexities. Christians need to work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Now, how do we do that? Well, in in our country, you can do that at the ballot box. You can do it by speaking up like Daniel did and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul through organizations that you involve yourself with, the ways in which this influence is exercised is, is, is voluminous. Christians should work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Now, as we do that, as we work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square, there's one other caveat I want to add to this. We have to have our expectations tempered. The Bible simply does not have high expectations for unbelieving people. It does not have high expectations for the conduct, the behavior of unbelieving people, which is why in the New Testament, all the imperatives, all the commands go out to Christian people. So that should temper our expectations. We need to make sure that we we have realistic expectations when we call non-Christian people to govern or behave in ways that accord with uh, biblical justice, Christian notions of justice. Now, even though that we should have those expectations tempered doesn't mean that the Christians just kind of throw in the towel. I think there's plenty there in the scriptures to establish this main idea that Christians ought to work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. That's it. Part three thoughts on politics. I've got one more for you next month. We'll do part four. We're going to look at Romans 13 and see what are the, some of the implications of that for us as we think about. It's not what you think it is, actually. It's going to be a little different take on that one. Um, but uh, we'll see what that has to say about our involvement with politics. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it as always. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.